O my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died instead of you. O Absalom, my son, my son. As Eugene Peterson comments, these have to be among the most tragic, saddest words, heart-rending words ever spoken. Words wrenched out of David's gut when the report was brought to him that his son had been murdered in the forest of Ephraim. And this evening, as we look at David and his son and his relationship with his son Absalom, there is an entire backstory that runs all the way from chapters 13 to 18 of 2 Samuel. And so I encourage you to read uh, the whole story if you're interested in learning about the context in which all of this takes place. But let me, for a minute or two, give you the basic overview of what has led to this moment in time. We are nearing the end of the life of King David. The problems David had with regard with his son Absalom can be traced back to his failure as a man and his failure as a parent earlier in his life. Everything was going well for David and his leadership for the nation of Israel. And the Bible tells us that he was a man after God's own heart. But then his life went off the rails in the worst possible way. And through a series of poor decisions, he wrecked not only his own life, but also the life of his family. And the first failure involved his sin with Bathsheba, after his adultery with Bathsheba and his arranged uh, murder of her husband Uriah, he committed one sin after another, which led to his family life falling apart. And as a result, he lost the respect of his family, but also the moral authority to lead the nation. And so in 2 Samuel 12, the prophet Nathan confronted David and pronounced judgment on the king. He said, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity upon you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you. And those words of prophecy were fulfilled in the rebellion and betrayal of Absalom. And of course, the backstory is that several years earlier, David's oldest son, Ammon, had raped his half-sister Tamar. And the Bible says that while David was furious about what his son did, he nevertheless didn't do anything about it. The first sign that he was paralyzed by his own guilt. For David understood what lust could do. It had led him to adultery with Bathsheba and then to murder. And how could he condemn his son for doing less? And so haunted by his sin with Bathsheba, and maybe all that that reminded him of him personally, how he had failed, he thought, how can, how can I hold my boy accountable when I did a very similar thing myself? 
Absalom didn't see it like that. It infuriated him that his father had looked the other way and allowed this great injustice to go unchecked in the family, that nothing was done about it. And Absalom was seething with rage. He was seething with anger. And the longer nothing was done, the more he felt the anger, the sense of honor violated. And so he began to plot justice and vengeance. If his father wouldn't take care of things, he would. And so carefully he plotted, quietly he plotted, cautiously behind the scenes. And finally, after a period of time, he had it all in place. He stood on his hatred for his brother. And eventually he lured him to an out-of-town kind of get-together party. And there, when Naaman was tipsy, he murdered him. Now, even though he knew he was David's favorite son, Absalom didn't think he could get away with murder. And so he ran and he lived in exile for three years, hiding out, running from his crime. He, David grieved the death of his son, but he also grieved the banishment of Absalom. And so after three years, Absalom is allowed to come back home again. But when he did, David refused to see him, to welcome him, sent him to live in another part of town, of the city, didn't greet him by name, wouldn't allow him into his presence, not so much a look. Eugene Peterson calls David's treatment of Absalom the third monumental sin of David's life, the most inexcusable and the one for which he paid the most. The adultery with Bathsheba was the affair of a passionate moment. The murder of Uriah was a royal reflex, reflex to avoid detention. But the rejection of Absalom was a steady, determined refusal to share with his son what God had so abundantly shared with him. Absalom, you see, was home, but he wasn't at home. He wanted acceptance. He wanted a personal word of forgiveness. He wanted his father's love. He required grace and mercy in order to live. And of course, when he first came back for the first few days, he was glad to be back. But gradually, he came to realize that he needed more than a piece of royal uh, permission to be simply there, to exist. He needed to know his father's smile, his words of welcome. He needed a father. And whatever David thought he was doing, perhaps he thought even that he was doing good by what he was, the way he was treating Absalom. Maybe bringing him a little bit to his senses, making him feel the seriousness of what he had done. But whatever way David would try to rationalize his actions, his refusal to forgive, his withholding of mercy, drove his son increasingly away from him, drove his son more and more against him. 
And when the situation wasn't resolved, when the situation wasn't resolved and only the most superficial healing of the relationship happened, Absol then spends the next number of years planning rebellion, planning to take the place of his father because of his great disappointment in his father, his deep love and his admiration for his father David had turned to hatred and to resentment. And there are a few things about Absalom we should know. Chapter 14, 25 tells us that he was good-looking, that there wasn't a man in Israel so highly praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. He had a warm, outgoing personality, ingratiating himself to the people. He planted doubts in their minds about his father and suggested that they would be better served if he was in charge if he was on the throne. And so after doing this for four years, we're told that he stole the hearts of the people. He began to take things into his own hands, plotting this time not the murder of a brother, but the murder of a father, of his father. And so he had the people revolt. He proclaimed himself king. He took over the palace, he took over Jerusalem. He set out to assassinate his father, so much so that David had to flee for his life. And once again, David was on the run, back in the wilderness in which he had spent previously so many hard and difficult years. And we see Absalom, handsome, charming, popular, pleasing, clever, deceiving, ruthless. And we see his success in plotting to overthrow his father, King David, and take the throne for himself. And he sought to make a mockery of his father. He slept with all of David's women who had stayed behind to take care of the palace. And he did so in broad daylight, as it were, for everyone to see. And in contrast, what a pitiful sight is David. Verse, chapter 15, verse 30 says that David fled from Absalom up the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went. He's lost his kingdom, his family. And now he's running away, weeping. He's only getting what he deserved. Where is the man who had stood up to Goliath with such confidence in God? And the whole story comes to a, a tragic, as it were, conclusion ending in a civil war between the two factions, as it were, in a battle between those loyal to David and those on the side of Absalom. And despite all that had happened and all the mistakes that he had made, Absalom, still, David still longs for Absalom's life to be spared. And so he gives specific instructions to his commanders. Chapter 18, verse 5 records, Be gentle with the young man Absalom for my sake. In other words, don't kill him. Don't kill him. Don't touch a hair of his head. 
And on the eve of that crucial battle, David surely was a wreck. He was afraid that he might lose the throne, but he was even more afraid that he would lose his son. The boy, of course, had been a thorn in his flesh, but he was also the apple of his eye. And before the fighting started, he told his chiefs of staff, his commanders, till they were sick, sore, hearing it. If Absalom fell into their hands, they must promise to go easy for him and to spare his life. But chapter 18, verse 9, tells us what happened next. Uh, Absalom happened to meet David's men. He was riding his mule, and as the mule went under the thick branches of a large oak, Absalom's head got caught in the tree. He was left hanging in midair, while the mule he was riding on kept on going. Deal gently, for my sake, with the young man Absalom. Everyone knew the order, but it wasn't followed. David's son was killed by the personal guards of David's loyal general and commander. Despite, despite all that David had said, despite being reminded of David's order to do otherwise. But Absalom believed this. Absalom be or Joab believed that justice demanded that Absalom die. For he had committed treason. He was a rebel. He had gone to great lengths deliberately and systematically to assert his claim to the throne and to bring the people with him, and turn them against David. He had driven his father out and installed himself as king over the people. And as a consequence, he had brought death to 20,000 people even in that battle. He was responsible for rivers of blood and misery. Families and friends divided among themselves. And as far as Job was concerned, Absalom deserved to die. Justice demanded it. A rebel like this could not be allowed to go free. This was no time for mercy. This was no time for being soft. Justice must be done. And Job didn't hesitate to deliver that justice. Verse 14, Job said, I am not going to wait like this for you. So he took three javelins in his hand and he plunged them into Absalom's heart. But Absalom was still alive in the oak tree. Job knows that Absalom's death is the only thing to do. So he believed. But meanwhile, the word is going back to David about the battle. And every person that comes to him and tells him about how the battle is going, he asks them this one question, is my son Absalom safe? And finally, there's a runner that comes with the news that the battle is won, but Absalom is dead. 
but he can't tell, bring himself to tell David that. So another one comes, verse 32, who says, May the enemies of my Lord the King and all who rise up to harm you be like that young man. And then we come again to verse 33. One of the saddest, most pitiful scenes in all of the New Old Testament. The king was shaken. He went up to his room over the gateway and wept. As he went, he said, O oh, my son Absalom, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you. O oh, Absalom, my son, my son. And as one commentator tells us, he meant it. He really did. If he could have done the boys dying for him, he would have done it. If he could have paid the price for the boys' betrayal of him, he would have paid it. If he could have given up his life to make his son alive again, he would have given it. But even a king could not do such things. But despite everything that has happened, David still longs with love for his son. All the betrayals, all the might, things that might have been, all those things, the emotional breakup of this family, that all that had happened. And so has the soldiers come back through the gate for their victory celebration. In chapter 19, they hear that tortured voice from the room over the gate of entrance. Chapter 19, verse 4. O oh, my son Absalom, my son Absalom, my son. And it's almost impossible to, to represent, to take on board the intensity of, of emotion in those words and in that verse. And so ends the tragic story of David and his son Absalom. Now, one of the questions that we might well ask is, why, why is the story of the Bible? Why, why, why do we read it? Why spend an evening thinking about it? Well, people might come up with all kinds of comments and reflections about that. Maybe we could learn some lessons from David about parenting about how parents should relate to their children and so on. That parents shouldn't make favorites of one child above another. But I think there's more, more to it than that. David failed. He failed as a man and that clouded his vision. He failed as a parent, and he failed as a king. And it also reminds us that we live in a world of consequences. The consequences of living in this broken world, the consequences of sin. For here is one of the clearest accounts of the consequences 
of not living in a way that honors the Lord. You may not remember, but when Nathan confronted David with the adultery and murder, one of the things that Nathan predicted is that evil would rise up from the house of David against me. And so this moment in time is the direct result of David's sin. And he's not just mourning his son, he's mourning and grieving the consequences of his sin. And you get a picture here of how far-reaching the consequences of sin are. Generation, perhaps after generation. Consequences that flow out in different ways into those around us. Consequences not just for David, but for David's family and for David's nation. And there's something for us to think about there and the warning to be heeded. Remember Galatians 6 verse 7, Paul writes, God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, he will reap. But uh, Christopher Ash commenting on this psalm tells us that there is in human life and death an unresolved tension between the demands of justice and the longings of love. An unresolved tension between the demands of justice and the longings of love. What should have happened to Absalom? Was it right that he suffered the demands of justice? Or should the longings of love have prevailed? In the end, was the news of his death good news? A traitor, a rebel has died? Or bad news? Should he have lived or should he have died? Do we put ourselves in the place of Job? Do we put ourselves in the place of David? Some of us would put ourselves in the place of Job and say, yes, justice, justice, justice. And some of us would put ourselves in the place of David. Kindness and compassion and forgiveness. But you see, we're not in the position of David and we're not in the position of Absalom. We are, or of Job, we are not Absalom's judges. We are Absalom. For the truth is that by our nature, by nature and by practice, we are in rebellion against God, against our king. We don't want him to be the king and the Lord over our lives. We don't want to acknowledge him as the king of kings and Lord of Lords. In our natural, sinful, broken, fallen condition, we don't want to hear from him. We don't want to do his will. We want to do our own thing and go our own direction and live our lives and be the masters in our house. And so as long as we live in that condition, we are indeed rebels against our king. And what, what should be the result? Well, death. The wages of sin is death. 
That's the demand of justice. Heaven and, heaven and earth ought to rejoice, you might say, when the news of our death is announced. For justice will have been done. But you see, that would break God's heart. For God longs with love for his world. He has made each one of us in his own image. And he wants us to be reconciled with him, guilty as we are. He longs to adopt us again as his children, to put the past behind us and to mend and restore that broken relationship with him. But how can that happen? Well, justice demands that you and I die for our rebel, for our rebellion. Love makes an equal demand that we be spared. Well, David spoke a truer, never a truer word than when he cried out, if only I had died instead of you. But my friends, what you and I know this evening as one has died in our place. In my place, condemned he stood. Hallelujah, what a saviour. Justice, justice died because we deserve to die. But he took our place. But mercy there was great and grace was free. David wanted to die in Abstin's place, but he couldn't. Jesus could die in our place, and he did. And so when we read this story in these chapters from 2 Samuel, we do so in the light of Jesus Christ, his life, death, and resurrection. When David failed, where David failed and fell, Jesus was faithful. Where love and justice clash in this story, in the person of Jesus, they come together in his death upon the cross. For that is where, that is what is at the very heart of our Christian faith. The cross, the place where God's love and God's justice meet. David spoke better than he knew. Verse 33. Would I had died instead of you. And years later, all those years later, David's greater son, the Lord Jesus, did just that. He died. He died. And as he died, the demands of justice in the sight of a holy God, were satisfied forever. And the longings of love could be fulfilled at last. For the story of Absalom's death ends at the cross of Jesus Christ. There is a Savior. There is a Savior who has dealt with our sin and who deals gently with sinners like us. A Savior whose Father longs to be the Father to you and to me. 
and we will never fully understand from the depths of what Jesus has achieved on the cross. But our lives should be ever shaped by gratitude and thanksgiving for what he has done, that their justice and mercy meet. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss. The father turns his face away as wounds which mar the chosen ones bring many sons to glory. Amen. Let's just take a moment or two in the quietness as we have been reflecting on this story of David and Absalom. Let's bring our own response before the Lord to give thanks to him. Thanks that there on the cross of Christ justice and mercy